bear in mind that the vast majority of people who go to their GPs and who wind up on lifetime medication will not spend 65, 75, 95, 105, however much it is, um, to go and talk to someone about their health. You know, so we're looking. So the GPs and the complementary therapists are actually dealing with two very different patient groups um, within within sort of any particular you know sickness um, ailment spectrum. Um, and even those who are willing to pay money and come along and chat about it, there's still some some of them and a lot of them still not ready to change. They know they need to change. Um, they're just not ready to change. And this is the thing that I always get across to my students as well. I said, please. Go do yourself a, some kind of a training program in counselling, um, you know, because most of it is all around motivation. It's all about um, getting people where they are. What do you want to what What do you want to achieve? As my GP said to me, "What do you want to achieve? Um, what are you prepared to do to get there? You know, why does this matter to you?" Hello, and welcome to the Natural Healthcare Network podcast. My name is Deb McLeod, and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today, I am delighted to say that Georgie O'Connor is joining me. She is a cardiac physiologist, a reflexologist, a qualified nutritional therapist with her own practice. She is a senior lecturer with the College of Naturopathic Medicine in Biomedicine and nutrition, and she is also a business development manager for a two-tier diagnostic service provider. What a mouthful, and how exciting to have Georgie here with me today. Thank you so much, Georgie. It is such a pleasure to have you on my show. Delighted to be invited. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those yay moments yeah. when um, when it was uh, organized. I was so thrilled. So um, we're here to talk about you mm-hmm. today. And we're here to talk about your story, what got you, you know, a little bit of history about you, because I know you from the College of Naturopathic yeah. Medicine. I only got to be in one of your classes oh. over a weekend, but I know you're highly regarded and very much loved. So that's how I got to know you. But I know you have a, a history <laughs> in the nicest, <laughs> well as well. <laughs> so I think it'd be great to hear a little bit about your story. What got you into nutritional therapy to teaching and what you're doing now and or what you're going to do going forward now if we get all of that packed into one that's amazing um (laughs) yeah and if we don't we'll do it to be continued i I am very keen for us to talk about heart health sometimes so that may Mm. be a completely separate uh podcast so so um over to you all right um Okay, so as you can tell from the accent, um, not, yes. a, not a native of Plymouth, um, although <laughs> I've lived for the last, uh, gosh, what is it, 16, 17 years now. Um, so I, I came here on a, on a five-year plan and I just haven't left. <laughs> um, so I was born, educated, brought up in Ireland um, in Cork, Cork City, um, and at the age of 22, I followed the rest of my family over to London. Um, for those who are familiar with the Irish story, it's not unusual for people to be wandering over and back um, for work, for, for opportunities. Um, then they go back home maybe to raise families and stuff. So there's always the constant movement of people over and back. Um, so I landed in London, which I loved, 
absolutely adored um, because it was just so exciting. <laughs> it really was. Um, yeah. you know, when you're 22 and, and you're let off the leash and suddenly yeah. you're not in an environment where everybody knows you, you know, your parents aren't there, um, you know, you're not in a school uniform that can be instantly identified and reported back to uh, to the headmistress, you know, if you're if you're caught doing something wrong in the town, um, so it was it was amazing. I loved it. Um, but one of the uh, I did um, I did a, a degree course in in Ireland um, on human physiology, and there was an element of human nutrition in that. I desperately wanted to do physiotherapy when I was in school. That was my big thing. But um, physiotherapy is actually more difficult to get into in Ireland than medicine. There's, oh. Yeah, there's very limited places for training in it, very limited. Why um, is that? Is there any particular reason? Um, I'm trying desperately to remember now, but this is a long number of years ago. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> more, more decades than I care to think about, really. Um, oh, wow. But it, I think it was only Kevin Street of Technology that used to do it. It wasn't actually done in in the other universities around Ireland. It was only like the one place that trained people. So, um, yeah, that's what made it so difficult to get into. So I went, oh, well, never mind, enough me. Um, so I had done science, and then I came over to London, and the usual thing, you land, and all you really want is a bit of pocket money to go out and party. So <laughs> I didn't really mind what job I did. Um, I was a filing clerk for a while. Um, I worked in Ratner's Jewelers Warehouse for a while. Um, which was great. I love that. Um, <laughs> um, and then eventually went to work for the Medical Research Council on their admin side. Um, basically, um, it was for the grants application teams where, where scientists would write in and apply for grants uh, from the government and then they would be adjudicated and whatever. And that was amazing because that was great because you didn't just work on one area. You worked on a whole bunch of areas. Um, so... Even though I was only there sort of in a, in a sort of a clerical role, I found the science fascinating. Um, and um, actually, my love of science, I think I have to attribute to my dad, who let me stay up and watch Cosmos with Carl Sagan um, <laughs> on Irish TV when I was a kid, um, which was obviously well past my bedtime at the time, but he thought it was educational, so he used to let us do it. So, yeah. Oh, Nice. So that's, that's where all my, my, my fascination for science kind of comes from, is from Carl Sagan. Um, so uh, I did that for a little bit, did that for a year or so. And then my mom, of all people, found an ad in uh, the Evening Standard in London um, for Hammersmith Hospital, who were looking for trainee, um, they were called uh, medical technical officers at the time. Um, she said, oh, you might like doing that. I don't know don't know give it a go so as you do in the best attempts you, you just sort of throw your cv at it and go hello <laughs> <laughs> um so then i think that, that was at 24 so at 24 i started my first job in cardiology and i have never looked back wow um i loved it um it was on the job training back in those days um it is now a master's course <laughs> is it really yeah um but it was all on the job training um, the things have got a lot more technical, to be fair. Um, okay. So um, we are now known as cardiac physiologists. It's a very little known group of people. <laughs> yeah. How many are, are there of you? There's, there's quite a number around the country because every test that you want done, 
be it um, your standard 12 lead ECG where you lie down on the bed and they put the stickers on your chest. Um, so for that, exercise testing, which uses the same techniques, they just put you on a treadmill with it. Um, long term, longer term monitoring where they fit you with a little device that you have um, attached to your chest for anywhere from 24 hours. It used to be seven days, but now they're recording up to 28 days plus on those. Um, and then you've got implantable recorders, which just go under the skin. Um, there's echocardiographer, which is scanning the heart in the same way as you scan for like for for babies. Um, and then there's um, cath lab, which is cardiac catheterization, where you're inject. Well, the tech the the technician isn't, but the doctor is. But you're there in a support supporting role with the nurses, um, where you inject dye into the coronary arteries to see. Um, what state of disease somebody's heart is in. Um, and then there's the whole other side of rhythm management, which is pacemakers, um, implantable defibrillators, um, and things like that. So huge. Um, and then there's, an, this is, then there's another side to it, which is electrophysiology. Um, <laughs> and they are people who can map out where potentially dangerous rhythms arise in the heart. And that that's... Um, that's a very niche role, that one, but it's one that, that they're doing more and more on. Um, so, so really, cardiology is split up between two, two realms. You've got plumbing and you've got electrics, um, to put it quite simply. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. So you've got plumbing and electrics. Um, I pretty much stayed with the electric side, um, and uh, I didn't really get into the plumbing too much, but... Um, yeah, so that's so that's basically what cardiac physiologists do, and there there are there are thousands of them up and down the country. Um, the thing is, we're running out of them. <laughs> um, people aren't going into that field really so much, mainly I suppose because they don't know it actually exists. Um, and it used to predictably be mostly a female role, um, as a lot of caring and nursing style roles are, um, but. Because of the technology side of it now, I think more and more men are getting into it, which is good. Right. Um, yeah, so from that point, I then went to work in hospitals for, I want to say, a good 10 years, um, wandering around. So I started out in uh, Hammersmith Hospital, and I went from there to um, St. George's Hospital in Tooting, down in South East London. From there to uh, Great Ormond Street. Uh, I worked for a research unit in Great Ormond Street for a while. Um, and then I left the NHS and got into um, professional research, if you like, clinical trials. Right. Um, so can, can, I, can I ask you a question? I'm guessing you just you moved and got different jobs. You just moved to different hospitals doing the same sort of thing? Or was your... Uh, career sort of evolving when you were doing the cardiac physiology it was, it, was, it was evolving Deb really to be honest because a lot of people would have started uh when I was starting a lot of people would have started that role out of school at 16 17 right. whereas I had I had gone to all the bother of going to university um, <laughs> um that, that actually put me behind the that put me behind really in terms of being able to get trained and get on um, right. At that time, yeah. In fact, my, my boss said to me afterwards that she was she almost didn't didn't take me on because I had the degree. Crazy! What is it? They thought that that would sort of 
give you a preconceived idea of what should be happening. They wanted someone who was completely raw and fresh and could step into it. Now they don't even see it that way. How fascinating. I, I know. I, th I think it was that because um, there's a lot of, you know, as there is in any profession, there's a lot of sort of nitty gritty stuff that needs to be done. Um, and I found it myself as I, as I progressed on through the ranks and then eventually when, you know, when you're leading your own team and you're recruiting. I did find that when we brought people in who had a, a degree in human physiology or sports physiology or anything like that, they didn't seem to want to go and do the standard ECGs over on the geriatric wards or, you know what I mean? Right. The normal, you know, bread and butter stuff. They wanted to be in the cath lab. They wanted to be playing with the pacemakers. They didn't right. think they, you know, that they should be doing you know this other stuff but it's it's they wanted you know, the sparkly shiny stuff is what they wanted don't we all yeah <laughs> <laughs> of course we do because it's pretty and exactly exactly um it, just to, to jump back one of the when you were talking about electrophysiology and you yeah. said that that there wasn't um that that area has grown do you think that has or they're doing more and more of them do you think that's down to sort of the basics of heart health and heart disease being so do you think that this role has or this specific area of investigation has increased because of heart health issues in the country um specifically for for electrophysiology to be honest it's more that they now have the technology to be able to uh -huh. detect right. problems right with the heart rhythm, with the actual cells and the uh, conduction pathways within the heart, which you can't actually see with the naked eye. Um, so they now, and people used to just drop dead, you know, from cardiac arrest. Um, so this is kind of one of those areas where we now have the technology that if we, if we can recognize the symptoms, um, which of course is, is, brings me on to much later where I am now. Mm -hmm. But if you can actually recognize the symptoms in primary care and get the, the right diagnostics done there, um, then there's an awful lot more that can be done um, in, in advance, you know. Um, in terms of our general uh, bad state of cardiac health, which is just getting worse as mm -hmm. the years go on, um, that's down to plumbing. <laughs> That's um that's that's arteries getting narrower and um you know people saying oh well don't don't eat fat then and they just eat sugar instead yeah go from the fat to the fire really yeah <laughs> like yeah. really guys you know come yeah. on um and, and I still find amazing that the most the healthiest diet and the healthiest this the nation has actually been was back during rationing in World War Two you know. Um, because if you, it, it is, it is my bugbear and I, and I will jump around, so you'll have to keep control of this, Deb. Um, but you know, it, it is my huge bugbear is that the, the, the amount of, of a supermarket that is dedicated to, to fruit and veg is so small compared to the size of the actual, you know, the square footage of a, of a supermarket itself. It's crazy. It's shocking. Really shocking. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. Really, and and it's and I'm not casting aspersions on anybody who uses food banks or needs assistance in that way at all, but at the back of that, I feel that there is a loss of an ability to be able to cook. Yeah, to be able yeah. to put together some meals, you know, because when when people say like you know that you know you can't afford to eat healthy, it, eating vegan and vegetarian is about the cheapest thing you can do. 
I there's know. an entire subcontinent in India that does it. Oh. They are less, you know. You go all over yeah. the place and you find the foods that beans and pulses, grains, fruits, veg. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. We have we have just kind of gone upside down, haven't we? So, so okay. Now you have you've left the NHS. I'm so I'm yeah. going to jump us back. We'll jump all around. I don't mind. This is what's nice um, <laughs> about it. You left the NHS, and then what happened then? So, right. So I left the NHS and I went into clinical trials. Um, so basically, any clinical trial for any drug on the planet has to have an element of cardiac monitoring. So you have to you have to show that whatever you're doing will not adversely affect the heart. Whatever else you're going to do, you have to ensure that it's not going to adversely affect the heart. Um, and one of the big things at the time, um, it still is, but it's more automated now, was monitoring a section of the ECG called the QT, um, mm -hmm. which is a section of the ECG, you know, the sort of squiggly bit where it goes up and down and a little, little extra bump at the end. Yeah. Um, it's that bit there. So making sure that the heart can actually get ready for the next heartbeat. And a lot of drugs um, will actually interfere um, with that mechanism that actually gets the heart ready for the next heartbeat. Amongst them are common uh, antifungals, antimicrobials, um, uh, antibiotics, all of those things that you get on prescription, uh, especially antifungals, have the capability to actually adversely affect the heart in that way. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, man. No. So, oh. um, yeah, so that's, so on that basis, that's the reason why every drug trial has to have some element of cardiac monitoring in it. Mm -hmm. um, so we did, um, the group that I went to work for, we did the uh, cardiac review. Um, for clinical trials. Now that is um, it's basically a whole bunch of people locked locked away, all just sort of staring at screens as new new data comes in um, and just um, reading it, reporting it, getting it signed off by a cardiologist and getting it sent back, so that they can then uh, get the next dosing group ready. Um, and of course, it's really important that while you're doing that dosing that the analysis is happening in real time. It's also really important that um, clinical trial centers that don't have cardiac expertise um, actually do have a, a, a centralized source for reviewing their ECGs in real time. Right, right. So is that, are you still doing that now? Um, yeah, that's, that's how I wound up with my current employer, but it's not currently what I'm doing for them. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, I, I have been really fortunate. I mean, the, the company that I work for at the moment here in Plymouth, um, we, that's essentially what we were. Um, mm. We were a centralized uh, cardiology lab. Um, and that was fine while, and it, it goes with sort of the flavor of the, of the sort of what people are interested in at the time. And then also, of course, technology got an awful lot better as well. Um, the thing, when I was talking about the QT there, that kind of a study is extremely expensive to do. What's a QT? So QT, sorry. QT study, yeah. Um, oh. which is, which is monitoring for that specific finding. Um, oh. that is a very expensive style of study to do. It's very intensive. Um, so what they do now instead is they do, um, you can actually sort of record all that data. So if your pre-trial work, if your lab work and your animal work, um, and yes, there is still obviously a lot of animal work being done. Yeah. Um, 
if all of that pre pre-trial work um, doesn't indicate all your modeling suggests that there's no indication that that particular area of the heart or that herg channel will actually be affected um, then what you can do is you can record data um, and but not actually have it analyzed unless later on in the drug's life it appear you know um, it, it actually needs to be done and then you can go back and revisit it Gosh. so that was yeah so they, they've changed that round and because they changed that round and everybody got kind of comfortable with it um, that meant that as a company we had to change what we were doing mm-hmm. in order to survive um, and that happened to coincide with um, the creation of the um, clinical commissioning groups. Right. So these are those groups. Um, that's, this is the sudden turnaround where um, GPs could now have a voice. Um, and there was actually these groups created um, to actually sort of bid um, for services in particular areas or look at the best value for money. Um, in terms of where to have things done, where was the best place to be doing things. Um, And also to centralise the care a little bit more on the patient. So rather than sending the patient hither and thither and yon to get things done, how much stuff could be brought to the patient instead? Um, And keep the GP central in that role. Because otherwise, as, as you know, I mean, you get sent off for tests and you wait however long to have them done. Um, and then you wait for, you know, the secretaries to catch up with the backlog in, in correspondence. Yeah. Then write the letter that goes back to the GP. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a very long process. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised people just sort of get hacked off and just go camp in their local A&E departments instead um, yeah. with, with a good book, you know. Um, yeah. So, uh, so this is kind of where, where this is where this kind of an effort now comes in. So gradually we started doing that kind of work instead, was offering all the skills that we had from doing ECG analysis, clinical trials. Uh, we thought, well, let's offer it to the GPs. Right. So that's what we do now. <laughs> right. So, okay. Yes, I get that. I get that. Because I had to do one of those ECG monitor- monitors for 24 hours. It was very weird. It is strange, um, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. have it strapped around your chest and all that stuff um i've never heard anything back on it so i'm assuming i'm not dying <laughs> i always think the breathing is a good thing you know if you're still breathing uh, that's good that's it's fine. an indication things it are is. still going on yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're here today we're getting on with it so exactly. that's good that's yeah. it oh that's fascinating so you're still working with them and does that mean that yeah. you're traveling all over the country to do this yeah. sort of thing what do what do you what does it mean so basically it depends on uh whether we're talking to individual gps um whether there's groups of gps um, um and then there's the actual clinical commissioning groups themselves will look at a service i'll give you an example of um and, and I, I know these people won't mind me talking about it because um, I have their permission to. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, but um, so Bromley in London, Bromley CCG, um, along with a number of other big groups, all use King's College Hospital um, as their main area. Um, and King's for a long time had basically bid on every contract for diagnostics that were coming in um, and bid the lowest because they were concerned about the privatization of, of the healthcare system. But 
they got to a point where they just couldn't cope with the amount of cardiac diagnostics coming in. So they decided, um, actually, we're going to ask the GPs to do them. So anything that's non-urgent, which is about 80% of the work that comes through any um, outpatients in a, in a hospital. Um, so uh, any of the non-urgent work, they're going to ask the, uh, the GPs to do. So that's the 12 leads, uh, which is the one that gets done when you're lying on a bed, um, just for about 10, 10 20 seconds. Um, and, the, and the monitoring for 24 hours plus. And also, and more importantly now, um, hypertension, the 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. Right which of course is a huge thing um, and getting bigger by the minute. Um, and they, and all those, all those customers are, are, are repeat customers because you have to ensure that the, the medication's working. Are they actually adhering to the medication protocols? Um, so there's a lot of that. So, so they decided that they, they wanted all the GPs to do that. So they had a tender for it. Um, oh. So we won that tender um, for a little company, which was brilliant, and we were delighted. So we then spent six weeks in Bromley um, training 46 surgeries um, in how to do all of that work um, and then how to send it to us in Plymouth so we could analyze it for them and then send them their reports back. Gosh. So that's what you do is you do the training. You teach the GPs how to do this. Actually, we, we train the nurses. Train, and oh, right. Train, no better. We train the nurses and the healthcare assistants. Yeah. <laughs> Why did I say that anyway? But yes, of course, it's always the nurses. Bless them. Um, they always have to do so much. Okay. It's, it's really interesting. It's one of these little things that you just never know about. So one yeah. of the questions that this makes me, this brings up in my mind is, do you know the current statistics on heart disease? How bad it is? Um, you're basically going to die of one of two things, cancer or heart disease scary isn't it that's basically where you are that's a real statement yeah isn't it that's basically your two main causes um so i mean people are ter you know people have a, have, a, have a terror of cancer and i understand that um i understand because it, it's be a lot of it due to the treatments and that it goes with it but i don't understand why people aren't terrified of heart disease i don't either I don't, honestly, I don't either. And as I said to you, that is, my mom had heart disease. She had problems with the plumbing and the electrics. So yeah. she had both problems, which is, I know it's not uncommon for people to have that, no. that. So this sort of leads quite nicely. When did you get interested in the, the holistic side of this? So you've done all of these things. Mm. Um, but when was it that the holistic healthcare sort of started entering okay. or coming into your your life? You you've obviously you're still working in this in the conventional medicine world, yeah. which I I really find very interesting and exciting. Mm. Um, I, I like to actually I, I really like my role as it is at the moment. I, I like being in in um in contact with primary care. Uh, it 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 has opened a whole other world to me that I. I didn't realize how primary care worked, um, to be honest. Um, so that has been fascinating. The reason why I got into complementary health at all in the first place is um, when I was working in St. George's Hospital, I just, you just see the same patients coming back time and again, getting worse and worse and worse. Do you know what I mean? So they would start out coming in, getting a diagnosis on a treadmill test. Then they would uh, come in and have their first cardiac catheter. Then they'd have their first set of stents done. Then they'd come back and have a bypass. Then they'd be having the bypasses stented. Um, and then, you know, it's just like, 
it's just you know i mean and these people are all medicated to the hilt all all these interventions these extreme I mean, these they're they are life-saving don't get me wrong Absolutely. Um, in certain circumstances um and you know, I think that's the thing that sort of completely frustrated me was that I was watching these people and I thought, is it inevitable? Is it just, you know, is, is there no way around this at all? Um, and a lot of the work at that time in terms of sort of, um, I suppose I got interested in cardiac rehab. I never went into cardiac rehab as such, but I have attended a training course on it. Um, and one of the big things that they were doing was stress reduction. Right. So on the back of that, I got interested in uh, reflexology. So I went off and trained in, in reflexology and Indian head massage. Um, and I liked that a lot. And um, then the same group that I was training with also did a nutrition um, module. And I went, well, okay, can't hurt, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> it's, it's one day a week for 12 weeks. I can do that. <laughs> Uh oh, and l lo little did you know. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, it hasn't stopped since. The, yeah, the past yeah, yeah. Day, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and then once once I actually got into the nutrition side of it, and then of course I heard of uh, Dean Ornish mm -hmm. and Caldwell Easelstein, and of course once I'd seen Caldwell Easelstein's um, pre and post catheter images, you know, of that artery that's like narrowed down like a lynx in a sausages. Um, and then opened up again after you know what is it um, 13 months um, you, you have that that um, that PET scan of the of the left ventricle which is showing so poorly functioned so poor blood supply going to it and yet after just six weeks just six weeks of, a, of, of the intervention um, you've got a beautifully perfused left ventricle happening you know because you've got collateral circulation forming you've got lots of nutrients actually so you know you've got the, the starting to reverse the plaques in the in the arteries um, and w once I saw that I'm like oh my god yeah what <laughs> you know why, why aren't we doing this yeah yeah you know um, and, and then it's just stunning it's just stunning and, and but the other part of the stunning is oh my god why can't people do this i know i know and why don't they do this but anyway yeah. that's another story uh, yes. so yeah um so so that's um so yes yeah, so I, I got into it through the stress reduction side of things for the mm -hmm. reflexology um i thought what the heck i dabble in the nutrition module that introduced me to their work that's when i found cnm um and then on i went from there ever since so did you did you train at cnm is that what you did yes i did yeah yeah i did um back <laughs> when we were, <laughs> this was uh this was before functional medicine uh, was was fully in the loop um um so this was sort of looking at uh, phyllis the books of phyllis batch and eldon haas yeah. um um and it was it was much, much more naturopathic um if you like um, so that was when we were in the grammar school um, on White Ladies Road. Right. Um, and we had a fabulous lecture there because um, I, I did the biomedicine year. Um, I could have gotten around it, I suppose, um, because I had enough training. But having spent so long just doing cardiology, I thought, mm -hmm. you know, my female hormone stuff and my immunology stuff, it's just not up to scratch. <laughs> um Plus, it's been a while since I've been in a classroom environment, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do the biomedicine year. 
just to sort of ease myself into it and what have you. And we had a wonderful lecturer, Christopher Robbins, um, who's, who's a herbalist. Um, so, um, and he was fascinating. Um, you know, we, we, would, we would regularly go on till half six, seven o'clock in the evening um, on those ones. Um, and it, it, was, it was amazing. I really enjoyed those, those days. Um, and then we had um, fantastic um, Australian naturopaths um, as our as our lecturers when we went on um, into into years one and two of nutrition. Wow. So yeah. And what was it that led you into? Because you you teach there, you're yes, a, yeah. an instructor there. Mm. Did you when you got your diploma, got your qualifications from CNM? Did you yeah. decide you were going to go out into the world and do? Okay, I'm going to be a practitioner, and I'm going to help people. What what were you? What were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> um, I think like a lot of people, I got to the end of that course and it was, I think I sat on the floor and basically rocked for about two months afterwards. <laughs> you do, you don't know? you? <laughs> it's so you're, intense. It's so bright. intense at the end, you know, because you've got your exams, you've got your clinic write-ups, you've got your assignments, you know, and it's like, and all of a sudden it's like, dumpf. You're not going anywhere on the weekends. You're not doing anything, but you're still waiting for your diploma to come through. And you're like, okay, I'm just going to knit teeny tiny teddies, which is what I did. <laughs> I spent about eight weeks knitting teeny tiny teddies. I made about 50 of them. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's great. You do. And you do kind of have that sense of, I need to go to class. No, I don't. I need to write a paper. No, I don't. Um, I've got it's that weird sort of push me pull you, isn't it? It's strange. It's very strange. Mm. Um, but the one thing that I did do because I I was I was very keen to keep in contact um, with all the gang in Bristol um, is um, I I went on the clinic supervisor training course. You know the assistant supervisor, um, but so I did that, and that of course made it meant I went up once a month, mm. um, and I really enjoyed that. I really, really enjoy that. Um, and I found a very different angle of looking at things because suddenly I wasn't, I wasn't dealing with the patient, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was actually watching as a third party the interaction between the student and the client. Um, and it was sort of, you know, I, so I've got a taste for then, you know, helping people to, to sort of come to the realizations or helping people to find their way through um, an actual consultation, link everything up, link up the biomedicine, link it up to to the to the to the biochemistry of the food, and then link that into the pathophysiology of the disease, you know, and things like that. So that that's what I, I found fascinating, and um, I was uh, still in contact with her, but very good friends with Rebecca Edwards, um, who was my tutor. Um, and she encouraged me to uh, to go ahead and actually um, apply to uh, to to, um, to lecture. So That's wonderful and lucky, lucky CNM to have you on board. <laughs> so, did you do any clinic work, or do you do the? Um, are you the instructor? Do you do both? Um, I, I do do both. Yes, um, I a lot a lot of what I. So, in in terms of um, clinical practice, I do have my own practice. It's small. Um, but I, I do have my own practice. Um, it shrank when I started to travel more um, for the main job, but I'm kind of just balancing that at the moment. But for CNM, um, I lecture across the biomedicine and the nutrition modules, um, which I love doing because 
I think in terms of lecturing for the nutrition, I think people are inclined to think, oh, that's biomedicine done. Done it. There. Parked. Passed the exams. Did the assignment. Lovely. Um, but you but you need to bring that with you. <laughs> you know, you need to bring that with you into the next two years. Um, so I, I like to bring that in. And in terms of the clinic, um, I did do year two clinics for a while. Um, they're very exhausting. <laughs> Year two clinics are absolutely exhausting to supervise um, because sure. it's, it's different when you're taking the, the client yourself Yeah. Um, because, you know, you're, you're actually with the client. But when you're trying to keep an eye on three, four, I mean, what have they got six rooms now? You know, when you're trying to keep an eye on six rooms, um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's something else. Um, so although you don't have the, you know, the, the time that's taken for prep work as such yeah. as you do for, for, for lectures, um you do have um as much time and recuperation um afterwards um, for the year. <laughs> um i'm sure but, um in, in in bristol now rowena paxton um pretty much take has taken over year two mm-hmm. um linda does some of it as well too um but i opted really more for the lecturing side and for year one clinics where i can guide people through what i'm doing why i'm doing it mm-hmm. um and uh, yes, yeah, because I, I, I still love that, that, that student clinic um, environment because it's just, it's different. When you get out into practice, people come to you for specific reasons. Yeah. Um, a lot of people that come into student clinics, they're, you know, I mean, they're amazing. They really are. Um, yeah. And an awful lot of them, bless them, are friends and family who are coming in just to sort of be helpful, but actually wind up finding out that there's an awful lot more wrong with them than they thought. <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> oh dear you know so it's um yeah so student clinics are, are great and I, I encourage everybody who goes through the course to please consider doing that assistant supervisor bit because i think it does add an extra element onto your onto your experience and your training um that you just don't get otherwise because if you just go directly out into the big wide world and launch a practice you know, um, you miss that that the nuances that you can pick up in in other. Plus, it's a great way to stay in touch with everybody. Yeah, you know, yeah. and not feel completely adrift. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do that. I didn't do that um, just because. And and here you were driving up from from Plymouth, and I'm just in East Devon. Oh, so, you know, it's I, do, I don't drive. I don't drive. I get on a train. Ah, right. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I just just thought, well, I'm not going to do it. But you're right, and I know that several. Uh, several of my classmates that graduated then have done have done the the mm. stu- student advisory, which I'm sure it really is interesting. And I've had several say, "Oh, they're really smart and switched on. They know what they're doing," which is exciting as well because it keeps us all on our toes. It is because students students who haven't been out in practice, students will will come from left field with stuff, you know. They they still they haven't formed their their, their patterns of, of analysis and and uh, yeah. diagnostic skills yet they don't they don't have any set or blinkered views on things um, yeah. they're still wide open to everything and they, they bring things to the to the consultation that you just don't get once you're yeah. actually in solo practice yeah you know so uh, that's for that reason I think it's worth um, uh, it's worth actually attending those so yeah I completely understand what you're saying because sitting in on clinics 
when I was when I was training at CNM, really fantastic be- being in there and observing and seeing what the practitioner would come up with and the the different health issues that people came in, up in with, always interesting and that we got to write up on the case studies that we chose, really helpful. So I can see what that would how that would be good. Now I want to to ask you. I know you're you're busy. You're you must be really busy because you've got three jobs that I know yeah. of. Yeah. And well, it sounds like you well, you have to balance all three of them. But my question for you is, how do people perceive your role in complementary therapy in the conventional medical world? How are you, you know, do they ask you questions? Do they even acknowledge it? Do they even know it? Yeah, they they know it, they acknowledge it and they do ask questions. Um, and, um, I find most people, um, certainly, uh, a lot of the, the general practice groups, um, are, are quite open to complementary medicine. Um, and I think anything that involves encouraging self-care, mm-hmm. um, is, is an amazing thing because uh, as you, as you know, and we all know, um, people tend to sort of present themselves to a GP. Do you know what I mean? Here I am, I'm broken, fix me. Um, And don't expect me to do anything myself about it. Um, You know, it's like my car. My car breaks, I take it to a mechanic, he fixes it, I get it back. I drive it exactly the same way as I used to. Um, So that's pretty much the the attitude that a lot of people tend to have towards their health and their bodies. Um, Not everybody. Okay, but a large proportion of people and certainly a lot of the people who go to their G who sort of are, are what we call repeat customers for GPs um, would, would be in, in that category. So GPs, nurses, um, healthcare assistants, um, community nursing, they're all they are all interested in ways of getting people to, to, to sort of do more self-care. What they don't have, what they don't have is time. And right. what they don't have is money right. to make any of this happen. Okay, um, so this is this is the big thing: is that one to one care is is expensive. You know, um, so I think um, what I would like to see happen, um, and and as you know, myself and Linda go off in fantasies about this occasionally. Um, <laughs> what we would very much like to launch, and what we would like to have happen, is um, something along the line of Plant Pure Nation. The plant pure pods from America actually happening here, which takes the work of uh, the China study group um, and Coldwell Easelstein's family as well. So the the plant pure pod people. So that's T. Colin Campbell's family, mm-hmm. um, the the guy who wrote the China study, um, and also Coldwell Easelstein's uh, family who were all yeah. involved in it as well. Um, bringing it to a community level. Um, actually sort of, you know, um, cooking the food, enrolling the people from general practice um, with diabetes, with heart disease, with hypertension, enrolling them, um, you know, voluntarily cooking the food, providing the meals, let the, you know, do that for them for six weeks um, and let them see the results at the end of it. You know, your blood sugars come down, your, your, your hypertension comes down, it gets easier, you get less angina, you know, I mean, it's just, um, but unless you actually take people by the hand, give them the food, here you go, try it, taste it, what do you think? Okay, so you liked it, lovely, here's how you make it, 
Okay, so now you want to learn how to make it. Let me show you how to make it. These are the foods that you need. This is the ingredients that you need. This is where you shop for those ingredients. This is how we make it happen on the plate. Okay, this isn't a diet just for you, by the way. This is a diet for everybody in your family. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, because otherwise, um, be it nature or nurture, be it your genes or be it how you've learned to, to eat and cook and live, the effect on the next generation is exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so we have to unlearn a lot of that. Um, so, yeah, so I, th I think that's what I would really love to see happen. Um, but I, I, you know, I mean, when you think about all the, all the money that, that they've thrown at it so far, the evidence that they have, um, there's no point in waiting for local government to do it um, because there's just too much other stuff and politics in the way. Mm -hmm. um so uh we have to do it from as 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 a, as a ground as a ground force movement you know yeah we have to make it happen with people yeah it's a perfect sort of social enterprise yeah um so yeah so that's and i have no idea how to make that happen <laughs> um so i you know i mean I'm, I'm trying to learn from from the guys in the states um um so i've, I've i keep up to date on that as much as possible um but at some point, I think, you know, I'm just going to have to... And I don't know what I'm waiting for. Um, uh, so I was waiting for something. Um, not too sure what, but uh, maybe, maybe the pandemic is it. Um, but waiting for a pause to actually sort of, you know, decide what to do um, and how to, how to make it happen. Um, because I know that if, if I went to... Uh, the way the GPs are organized now, um, so there's very few independent practitioners anymore. Um, they're all parts of larger groups. Right. They're, a, they're a business. They're a business. Um, so anything that sort of um, improves the health of their patients, um, reduces the pressure on the number of visits, because let me put it this way. If we get people healthy, if we get people, you know, on reversing their type 2 diabetes, you know, actually minimizing their hypertension, um, getting them healthier in heart disease states um, so that they get less angina, they're more active. Um, if, if we can do that, GPs are not going to run out of things to do. No. They are not going out of patients. They won't be running around breathless and trying to catch, you know, have, exactly. have five minutes to themselves, really, to go, go to the toilet, I'm sure. Exactly, because there are so many GPs now that are so burnt out. Yeah. You know, um, and you've got people that are that are in practice that are just choosing part time hours because they know there's no way they can do it full time. It would kill them to try and do it full time. You know, um, so so any of these larger groups now, where where these GPs have all sort of gone sort of grouped together, uh, for this kind, it's it's not. You know, they they would be very open. They all they have meetings once a month um, with usually with all the practice managers and the GP partners. Um, so it would be just a matter of uh, just to putting together a plan and the important thing is to have a plan that doesn't cost them money <laughs> um, that they can refer their patients into um, well not refer as such but recommend because they're not allowed to refer uh, but to recommend um, or, or sort of a or type of ter therapy too um, mm. so to do that um, they, they would go for it and if there's a positive thing at the end of it That'd be great. And the thing is, it needn't cost you as a practitioner that much to do either because you would be doing group work, you know. And then out of that group work, you will get, you know, one, two, three, four maybe clients that then want to come and see you one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. That's where you would then get your client base from. Um, mm -hmm. 
but you know, but but you can you know you, you can get funding from charity groups and even from the national lottery to to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, very exciting. I mean, it, it's it's that element of having the the practitioners, the the doctor surgeries, the the that are open to the discussion, and it sounds like you say they are. Yeah, they but are. it's then getting the people to get a fire under their bum because I always I think from I've been doing uh, podcasts with practitioners and asking practitioners to bring their clients on so we can talk with them which I think is equally is very inspiring yeah. by that. and I'm really interested in tipping points what is it that makes you think okay I'm either going to stay this way and just stay this way or I've got to make a change what is it that mm. happens within someone I think it's I know it's different for everyone but it's finding some way to make it about an exciting thing for them to want to do yeah that is yeah and as you say it is different for everybody but it is that it is that switch in your head um so I was I was a smoker um didn't smoke till I actually went to the work for the NHS <laughs> um, picked, up the, picked up the habit there um gave up after i finished my uh, diploma with cnm because <laughs> i thought if i'm going to go into practice i can't be smoking it's just this will not do um so but it i have tried in the past i, I had a three or four other goes in the past but it is suddenly something just clicks in your brain and he goes no i'm done with it i'm not yeah. doing that anymore yeah. Um, and it, it is, it is, but it's, it's sort of giving people a space to let that happen. So not sort of, you know, nagging them because nobody does anything in response to nagging. I know that myself. I'm one of the worst procrastinators for things. Um, and having the information there, having the dialogue, but without having the judgment. Yeah. Um, and just saying, well, look, you know, it's here. This is the evidence. Um, it's a very stark path. For a lot of people, especially with heart disease, yeah, neither you can either do this, or you can carry on as you are, and I can guarantee you, you will get worse. Your angina will get worse. Your arteries will get worse. Yeah. You'll go from stents to bypass to then finding that you um, have trouble walking up an incline. You won't be able to walk upstairs without stopping for breath. Um, and it all depends on well, what kind of quality of life do you want? Yeah. You know, and and for a lot of people, um, like you know, like like a lot of practitioners, um, I'll do like a fifteen-minute chat with people um, when I'm first approached to see if this is something that they're they're ready to do before they sort of you know engage in a full ninety-minute consultation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they feel rather trapped and they can't leave. You know, oh, the stuck. This woman's gonna make me do something. She's gonna make me <laughs> eat fruit and veg. Oh no, broccoli! How dare she? Food. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I know. I, I have it. I have a little bit of a reputation as um as a sort of a tough love. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I tend to get send people's partners and spouses <laughs> um when they you know when they're not responding to to sort of other hints and tips. Um. But I think you just have to have that conversation. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's let's not be let's not be about the bush about it. You know, um, and and the other thing that I was a little sort of dismayed about was it was a recent visit to my own to my own GP practice where I was sort of presented with, and what would you like to get out of this consultation? Oh, um, 
okay, I, I, I can see where that leaves it open to me, what I'm looking to get, you know, kind of thing of what I think is important. But I've come with symptoms. Mm. I want you to diagnose them. Mm-hmm. That's what I, that's, this is what I want to get out of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get diagnosis, please. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. So, you know, and bless them, GPs only have, what, 10 minutes, if that, eight, 10 minutes. You know, you, you can't have that kind of, you can't give people that space in a conversation when you only have 10 minutes to have that conversation in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So, Colly, this is, um, I mean, we've already been talking almost an hour. Um, time flies, time flies. So being in, an, gosh, where do I go with this? Because um, there are a few more things. Being an instructor, yeah, seeing all kinds of people, you, you're seeing, you're seeing both sides and this is what I find yeah. really so exciting. I mean, this is this is where I'm very keen, make it all about me for a moment. I'm very keen for us to bridge that gap, which yeah. you and I've talked about. That's my big thing is is to to really work hard on that, pulling it together, the, the you know, public, conventional medicine, complementary medicine, so we can all work together, get in there and get dirty, you know, yeah. and and get so we're all feeling well as we can. So yeah. as an instructor with um, uh, students coming in for nutritional therapy, uh, you know, what is that like? You know, are they excited? Uh, are you seeing that having been a, an instructor for years, are you seeing the type of person is changing or the mindset is changing or I don't know. I think, um, I think we, we were getting the same students as we always did. So we get students that, um, for family, personal uh, reasons, they may want to study a little further. Um, what I do see more now is more staff who work in health food stores. Um, I see a lot more personal trainers right, um, coming in and a few more chefs, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, because I know CNM has the chef program as well, which is great. Um, but they, so some like to, some think, no, I've already got the chef skills. Thank you very much. What I need is the, you know, is the other stuff. Um, so I, I see that. Um, my, what I always try to get across, and it is because I work in the field myself, a lot of people will come to class or will come to the courses um, being rather anti um, allopathic medicine. Yeah. And for some of their individual stories, I can perfectly understand that. People have been given a raw deal. Um, but for a lot of people, what I try to do um, is I try to say, well, look, you know, if you get run over by a double-decker bus, yeah. all, all the homeopathic remedies in the world will not do you any good. No. You, you need the big white building with the people in there that have trained for, you know, a couple of decades and how to put you back together again. Yeah. yeah. That, that's what that building and those people are really, really good at really good at that stuff and they've saved my what, life numerous times yeah it's so but, but what they're not good at is chronic stuff what they're not good is self-inflicted lifestyle chronic self-inflicted you know illnesses they're not good at that um because nobody's good at that really because it's down to the person mm. um so where 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 we come into the thing then with with complementary medicine is people first of all people pay us number one so they're actually going to hand over hard-earned cash to begin with. Now that, that's a big change in anybody's uh, motivation um, scale. 
Um, then they're going to sit there for 90 minutes and chat with us about everything and everything um, in their body. And we're going to show interest in them for 90 minutes. Yeah. Okay. That is a very, very different um, encounter. Yeah. Um, and bear in mind that the vast majority of people who go to their GPs and who wind up on lifetime medication will not spend 65, 75, 95, 105, however much it is, um, to go and talk to someone about their health. You know? So we're looking, so the GPs and the complementary therapists are actually dealing with two very different patient groups. Yeah. Um, within within sort of any particular you know sickness um, ailment spectrum, um, and even those who are willing to pay money and come along and chat about it, there's still some some of them a lot of them still not ready to change. They know they need to change. Um, they're just not ready to change. And this is the thing that I always get across to my students as well. I said, please go do yourself a some kind of a training program in counselling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. You know. Because most of it is all around motivation. It's all about um, getting people where they are. What do you want to? What What do you want to achieve? As my GP said to me, "What do you want to achieve? Um, what are you prepared to do to get there? You know, why does this matter to you?" Um, and then on we go from there. Um, so it's an awful lot easier for us to do that. But um, this is something that I try to get across to people: is that GPs are not your enemy. Allopathic medicine is not your enemy. There is a place for antibiotics. There is a place for self-care. If someone needs antibiotics, fine, they need antibiotics. We can clean up afterwards. We can do the gut repair. We can put the probiotics in. You know, we can we can heal things back up afterwards. But the last thing you want someone doing, especially, you know, if you think about something like um, chronic urinary tract infections, what you don't want is somebody not dealing with that at all and eventually wind up with um, with kidney infection and then you know possibly potentially lethally damaging your poor kidney um you know so no there's a place for everything and i think we have to that's why i prefer the term complementary or integrative um rather than alternative i don't like the word alternative because i think everybody's on a health journey together yeah I say holistic, but I, yeah, and I use complementary and integrative Mm -hmm. interchangeably because I agree with you. I think it's, think it's so important. And I, I I also think it's important for us to really, it's too touchy-feely, but embrace conventional medicine so they understand that we want to work with them. We want to, to be there, but they just don't, you know, it's just very frustrating with all of the health issues, with all the COVID stuff going on. No one really mentions anything about food. It's at least they're talking about at least they're talking about exercise. I mean, it is a they huge are. step in the right direction. But mm. wouldn't it have been great if they'd said, you know, maybe you start looking at the type of food you're eating, you know. But yeah. we know that the alcohol consumption has skyrocketed. Absolutely. Um, and we know that there are going to be so many more issues. People have gained weight, et cetera, et cetera, just because, although saying that, there are a lot of people that are getting out and exercising more, which they, is... They are. They are. I think, I think a lot of us, myself included, treated the first four weeks or so um, of lockdown as a bit of a holiday. Um, you know, it kind of it kind of felt to me like I like I just got on holiday. I bet it did because you didn't um, have to go anywhere, did you? No, because <laughs> everything stopped. You know, I mean, uh, work stopped, um, the, the classes stopped, um, 
and then you know seeing clients stopped so it all it all came to a to a sort of a grinding halt so i went okay all right i'm just going to read some books um probably drink a little wine um maybe a tea or two oh yeah um you know and uh, just kick back and then all of a sudden i thought hang on a second i'm not flattening my curve i'm flattening it here <laughs> I love it. I'm not flattening. I'm fattening. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know, I thought I need to do something about this. So I thought well, I've got a beautiful park across the road for me. Um, time to put on the sneakers. Oh my God. Yes, I can breathe and still tie my laces. That's okay. Fine. Um, <laughs> you know, put the sneakers on and just, just go walk and say hello to all the dog walkers. And it's been quite nice actually, because I'm now a nodding acquaintance with a load of people in my neighborhood that I never knew before. So yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah, the dog walking community is a whole different world. We don't know any of the, the, we don't have children, so we miss out on that community. But the dog walking community for us is very big. So when we don't see someone for a while, we're like, ooh. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah. that's nice. Yeah, and they're always, they're always usually pretty mad. So, okay. Um, is there anything you would like to talk about right now in particular? Because I'm happy for us to go down any road you would like. Uh, one thing that I would like to sort of get across in this sort of from, um, from from the work of, of Dean Ornish and the, the Undo It program that, that he runs um, is a, a, a low-fat vegan lifestyle. Um, and the one thing that I would say about it is that it's one of those programs that looks very severe when you look at it from the outside um, because it takes out all the stuff that we like to indulge in. <laughs> um, but it still has, you know, lots of lovely fruit and dates and, and nut butters and everything else still in there. So all, all the good tastes are all still in there. Um, but people look at that diet and they go, oh, you know, it's not a natural diet. You know, and any diet where you have to supplement, you know, your your B12 and your vitamin D, um, it's, it's not natural. Therefore, it can't possibly be, you know, the right diet. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. I think we all know that there isn't one right diet for anybody, no. uh, for everybody, should I say, um, you know, so some. But the thing is, if you have heart disease, if heart disease runs in your family, you should be aware of this diet and yeah. you should do your damnedest to at least give it a good go. Um, it does take the taste buds a while to respond to it. But what yeah. I would say is that the environment that we live in, the life that we lead is not natural compared to what we were. So people will say, oh, we know as long as you're eating um, organic grass-fed beef and I have unpasteurized dairy, uh, you know, blah, 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 that, that you know, that, that's all natural foods. And I'm going, well, okay. But back in the time when people were healthy eating all of that stuff, they weren't driving everywhere. Okay, they actually were different, yeah. They cycled, they walked, there wasn't the air pollution, there wasn't the electromagnetic uh, pollution, there wasn't TV 24-7, there wasn't 40 million television channels and Netflix, if you get bored of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? How can anyone um, get bored of Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you know? yeah. So there's, there's like, you know, there's, there's so much... There's so much now that that wasn't there before, you know, I mean, even just listening to, you know, it, even just listening to radio seems to be a little bit of a, a lost art form, mm, um, you know, it, it's just things like that. And I'm thinking, well, you know, you can say it's not a natural diet, but this is not a natural life. This this body that we have um, is not evolutionarily designed to deal with what we do to it and what we, you know, what we actually subject it to. 
in terms of um, packaging pesticides, chemicals, the stuff we put on our bodies, the stuff we breathe, the stuff we drink in our water. Um, and then, as I say to my students, do not get hung up on this. There is no point going to the highest mountain peak or going off with it. Even the polar ice caps are polluted. So forget yeah, it. You, know? yeah, yeah. You, have, you have to learn to live a little with it, which is why I do have the occasional GT. Um, you know, so there has, as a friend of mine says, there has to be something for the soul as well as for the body. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. It, we've got to do it. To three days before my mother died, she had it was her birthday and she had champagne on her birthday and Good. she still had a G&T every night and yes. you know there 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 are elements everything's a balance I have a coffee every day you know that's my treat and I really enjoy it so we've got to enjoy that's ourselves good. everything is a balance but I completely agree with you about the plant-based eating and if people are it's if people are just diehard they have to eat meat at least just make it uh, an accompaniment and make sure it's the best it can be. But yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I've got a relative that he's, you know, he has heart health issues. And they they seem to think, oh, well, you know, it's um, it's okay. My, my, my doctor was happy that I, my triglycerides weren't as yeah. high and et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, it scares yeah. me, but he won't make that change. Yeah. And it's really hard to see. And, you know, simple things, simple little tweaks in your diet can make such a difference. And that's mm. the beauty of it. That's the beauty yeah. of it. And exercise and doing a bit of meditating. Yeah. Um, you know, that's my, I seem to be going down a route of more lifestyle. You know, food is a, is a cornerstone and then getting into the yeah. lifestyle changes because... So, well, that's uh, that's really good. Um, I will definitely put those links on the show notes so people can get um, they can go and find out more about all of that if they don't mm. know it already. Uh, is the there is, is there anything we've got else? Sunshine, please go out and enjoy it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we have it. Take yeah. advantage. <laughs> um, I really do think maybe don't take it so seriously. Um, mm. You you get you know a, depends whether you're Buddhist or not. If, if, if you just believe you get one life, then enjoy that. Um, if you believe in karma, make the most of this one because you don't know what the next one's going to be. Um, you know, so I, I really do think that, I think this is the biggest lesson that I've learned from COVID um, is slow down. Slow down, yeah. enjoy it. Um, I, I live with my mom. My mom lives with me. Um, she's, she's in good health. Um, um, so no. we've actually, it, it wasn't that nice at the beginning. It wasn't. It really wasn't because, you know, I mean, it's, it's two women in the same house and normally I'm out um, at work, um, you know, or I'm up in Bristol lecturing. And all of a sudden we were here 24-7 because we were locked down. Um, right. You know, so my job was basically just sort of trying to find grocery deliveries. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, this is your job, Georgie. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's been great um you know so we've, we've gotten over the first little bit of sort of just you know getting used to each other again um sort of a, a oh. over a long period because as far as she's concerned i'm still five um you know <laughs> you're yeah. still her baby you know, I'm, the ba I'm the baby in the family I'm, 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 doesn't matter. I'm, I'm still the baby um so that, that's the thing is, is is learn is you know get get over the sort of the, the sort of the bits of you know because sometimes we have this with family where we we let things fester 
um, and we we let sort of um, disagreements just sit and and just just put it. You know, it's the source of rot in a lot of our personal relationships. And I think uh, we needed to learn to slow down. We needed to learn to look around at what was important to us. Um, and as the phrase says, you know, before you go rushing back to normal, be sure you choose what normal you want. You know. Very nicely said. Um, Very nicely said. And yeah, so true. Absolutely. Um, so, and as, especially to a lot of the CNM students as well, too, I say, relax. It's okay. You, you have the books, you have the lecture notes. Don't worry about it. Um, no client I have ever seen ever asked me what mark I got on my semester one assignment. Um, they have never asked me how well I did on my clinic two write up. Um, you know? <laughs> I just say chill a little bit um, and work with food I say that to everybody you know first and foremost if you're a nutritional therapist please work with food um, it's called yeah. a supplement for a reason and you know the most you really want to be giving anybody at any one time is two maybe three unless there's a very good reason for why you're doing otherwise you know the only people i think that sort of exceed that are those with autoimmune conditions and cancer patients you're going to be working a little bit more with supplementation on that front um but other than that food people food <laughs> you know? yeah it's such a nice easy way and to engage people and also there's so much good that comes from preparing food yeah. and you know you learn how to love it and it makes from an energy standpoint when you're preparing food and you're really enjoying the way it tastes all of that love goes into it and i think that that feeds our yeah. soul feeds our bodies and so the nutrients all the energy the dynamics i could yeah. go on and and don't, and and don't be a snob about it you know frozen food tinned food jarred food please i'd rather people ate that than ate ready meals Agreed. Agreed. Totally agreed. If you can get them to yeah. start on something, that is such a big thing. I, yes, absolutely. I had a client that I caught up with the other day and I just said, just chill out, just relax. It's okay. You know, the stress levels from everything out the roof. And I just said, it's okay. You know, worrying that she was having wine, this and that and crisps. I just said, have, if you're going to do it, don't do crisps every night. Have it yes. when you have wine. You know, a compromise. And I think they're surprised that I'm saying just relax a bit to try and reduce the stress levels because yeah. the anxiety over sometimes if they're going to get more anxious over all of those other things, I'd rather them just try and relax and then they're more than happy to start making those changes, etc. as we all know. I agree, yeah, because stress is, is the number one enemy for any program. And it doesn't matter... Uh, I think I, ha I had a client in uh, in year one clinic um, last year. And I think the students were a little bit um, bemused because we didn't actually do anything nutritional in the end. Um, it was all stress reduction. It was all managing stress, lifestyle and managing stress. I said, because I can give you the most beautiful protocol in the world. I can give you the most gorgeous diet, top of the range supplements, which I know you would go out and buy, no problem. But you know what? It won't do you any good whatsoever because you're too stressed and we need yep. to deal with that yeah come back Absolutely. to me when we sort of that bit <laughs> yeah yeah we can go on into all yeah. those beautiful foods absolutely totally agree that's lovely um now i think probably right now we'll 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 leave it there i always like to ask anyone that i have on is there anything i can do to help you i mean it's just me but is there anything that i can do 
to help. You've already done it, Deb. The podcast is it. You've done it, my love. Yes. Help me get my message out. Yes. Fantastic. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, you are welcome to share this wherever you. you want. I'd be delighted for you to do it. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. I, I'm so excited. It was really lovely. So thank you so much for your time. I'll let you go and enjoy the sunshine and time with your Yes, mom. we need to go buy a garden bench now. <laughs> lovely. lovely. That's perfect. Okay. Well, on that note, we'll Thanks, leave Deb. it there. Thanks right. so much, George. Take care. Then. Yeah. All right. Well, folks, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed sitting in and listening in to Georgie's story as much as I did. She had lots of insightful things to share with us on the show. So then, there are a couple of things to talk with you about. One of them I mentioned before, and that is that I am delighted to say that I am an affiliate with Bellican Rebounders. They are the highest quality and best performing rebounders on the market. I am thrilled to say I'm an affiliate. It's a very exciting opportunity. And if you want to find an alternative way to improve your health and fitness or that of your client's health and fitness, give me a shout. I'd be delighted to talk to you about this excellent product. And on another note, I'd like to ask you to do a couple of other things. One is to subscribe to my podcast if you haven't already and leave me a review. Thank you so much to those of you who have left me a review because these podcasts are here for you. They're here for all of us. They're here to support, collaborate, communicate, educate, and inspire one another. And the only way that I'll know if I'm doing this is if you let me know. So my email will be provided on the show notes along with other information that Georgie shared with us on the show. And on another note, the event that Anita Beardsley of Love Nutrition and I are planning to host in September, there may be some changes afoot. So watch this space. We'll provide further details as soon as we can. In the meantime, I'd like to thank you again for joining me on the show. And I'd like to wish you and yours the very best of health. Bye for now. Bye.